you join me as we pray together? Lord, we have already prayed in many different ways. We've sung our prayers. We've followed as others have led us. And I want to specifically pray for two things, Lord. I cannot speak words that will affect anybody for good unless you touch my lips. And your people gathered here cannot hear in such a way as to understand and believe unless you touch their ears. So will you send your spirit afresh? So we ask that you will sit enthroned on the praises of your people and ask that you will anoint both lips that speak and ears that hear in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, if you were here three weeks ago, we just kind of introduced this three-part series on Ephesians. And the first message, we just kind of looked at the overview of the book of Ephesians, specifically looking at the blessings that are ours in the heavenly realms, a phrase that occurs five times in that book. Basically, it was the way God saw the church, not the way we see visible reality. And we saw the church as a demonstration of the greatness of Jesus' power, uh, as a demonstration of the riches of his grace, and as a demonstration of his manifold wisdom. And we learned also that to maintain this conviction that this is the church in her true essence was not going to be easy because the place of blessing in the heavenly realms was also the place of spiritual warfare. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness in the heavenly realms. And so we learned that our foundational first strategy was praying in the spirit and praying for the spirit in our lives. What I'd like to do today is to unpack the practical implications of that. For in chapter 4, the apostle Paul says, okay, now in the light of this, he says, as a prisoner for the Lord Jesus Christ, I urge you to live a life worthy of your calling. If this is how God sees the church, if this is who we really are, what kind of a life should we be living? And that's what he wants to to talk about this morning, and in the first 16 verses of chapter, more, chapter 4, he gives us three governing principles of life together. That's why I've called this message Life Together. And in order to maximize the likelihood of applying this to our lives, where the rubber meets the road, I want you to think at the very outset of any group of which you are a part, a group of followers of Jesus. It could be your family, yeah, your closest group. It could be some committee on this church that you work together. Uh, it could be a service team, like a worship team. But any group where you are working together with other believers. And I want you to, uh, and we're going to pause two or three times during the message to think through what I have just explained from God's word, but you bring it to bear upon the particular group setting that you're part of. Because we're really going to be focusing about relationships today. And so he begins in chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, and he shares these words in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope and you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So there's the, the first governing principle of life together. We are to keep the unity of the Spirit. Now it's interesting that Paul doesn't say, go and guard unity. Or, sorry, create unity, because... Unity is something that we already have by virtue of the fact that we are followers of Jesus. 
For the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, for in one spirit you have all been baptized into one body. See, when we committed our lives to Jesus, whenever it was, at that moment, we were organically connected together with every other Christian that's ever lived and will ever live. You see, the Bible knows nothing about Lone Ranger Christians. While our commitment to Jesus was private, a personal, it was not private. It was a very corporate affair. In fact, if you were to really think about it, to be a Christian means to be a functioning part of the body of Christ. I mean, let me illustrate. If this arm were to be able to speak, and if this arm were to say, I love being an arm, <laughs> I just don't stand the rest of the body. So just kind of cut me off and put me off to one side. But you know what would happen? The rest of the body will survive quite well without an arm. And we all know people who've had that challenge in life. But the arm cannot survive without the rest of the body. It will just shrivel up and die. It will cease to be an arm. The only way an arm can be an arm is if it is organically connected with the rest of the body, accepting orders from the same boss. The only way you can be a follower of Jesus is to realize that you're organically connected to a body with Christ as the head, and you are called to do your part in functioning in that body. So, because there is one spirit, there is already one body. By the way, another implication of that is that you cannot hurt somebody else in the body without hurting yourself. This arm cannot say, oh, that's only the left arm that's hurting. It's only the left knee that's hurting. It doesn't bother me. No, it bothers the whole body. So that's the first implication. So we have unity because we have one spirit and therefore we're all one body. Now he also says in that passage that we read, you have one father. Now if you have one father, then it means that we're all brothers and sisters. And just like in your nuclear families, you did not have a choice as to who your brothers and sisters were going to be. That wasn't up to you. In the same way, in the body of Christ, you have no control over who's going to be your brother or sister. God doesn't ask for your permission before he regenerates one of his children. Whoever is a part of the body of Christ is your brother, is your sister. You're part of the same family because you have one father. Now, another implication of that is just like in nuclear families, unresolved tensions, especially with people in authority, significant people in your life, cast a long shadow and can often hound you throughout your life. Exactly the same thing is true. You cannot be casual about unresolved conflict with another member of the body of Christ. Now, I realize, of course, that in resolution of any conflict, it requires two people, and it may not be entirely within your control, but you need to be able to do everything you possibly can do. You certainly cannot say, well, I can walk away from that. No, you can't. Just like in a nuclear family, unresolved conflicts create problems. So in the same way, unresolved tensions within the body of Christ cause problems as well. So one spirit, so one body. One father, therefore one family. And thirdly, he says, one Lord, therefore one hope, one faith, one baptism. We all have one Lord, Jesus Christ. The hope that we all share is the fact that he's going to come back again. The one faith is faith in his death and his resurrection. 
And the one baptism is a baptism into his death and the baptism into his resurrection. And we celebrated that in the communion service. And that too is a huge, huge basis on which our unity rests. In fact, when the Apostle Paul writing in a letter to the Philippians, which he wrote at about the same time from the same location as Ephesians, and therefore the thought processes are very closely linked, he's writing to two women in the church at Philippi who are at odds with each other. Their names are Yodia and Syntyche. He says, I beseech you, Yodia and Syntyche, agree together. And you know, on the basis on which he exhorts them to be united and to settle their differences, he doesn't scold them, he doesn't rebuke them. He says, come on, you guys, grow up now, you know, back to your age. He doesn't say things like that. He could have. Instead, he says, don't you know that your names are written in the book of life? <laughs> One day, you're going to stand before Jesus. And guess what Jesus thinks of Yodia? Guess what Jesus thinks of Syntyche? He died to redeem her. She is, he is her Lord. <laughs> so what do you have to say to me about that? And he's going to say to Syntyche, Syntyche, do you know what he's going to say about Yodia? Your name is written in the book of life. I died for you. I am your Lord. Do you have anything to me, say to me about her? If we were to think like that, it would make a huge difference in the way in which we deal with conflicts within the body, right? So that's where he starts. He says, you don't have to create unity. We already have unity that is rooted in these seven great one things. One father, therefore one family. One spirit, therefore one body. One Lord, therefore one hope, one faith, one baptism. But, Here's the problem. These seven great things that unite us into one body are all invisible. We don't see the organic connection that we have with each other because we're physically not connected. We don't see the fact that we are brothers and sisters because we don't live under the same roof and grow up like we do in our nuclear families. And this one hope of Jesus coming back again in all of his glory that we've sung about, we don't see that that's not visible either. So even though we have these seven magnificent things that unite us together, they're all invisible. But the things that divide us are the, our physical features, our color of our skin, our idiosyncrasies, our ethnic backgrounds. These things are all too visible. That's why Paul says... Keep or guard the unity of the spirit. You don't create it. It's a gift from God. You already are united. But you've got to work very, very hard at preserving that unity because the things on which your unity is based are invisible. The things that divide you are all too visible. And so you've got to work hard at keeping it. In fact, it says in the text, make every effort to guard the unity of the spirit. John Stott in his inimitable style says, if you want to catch the imperative force of the original language translated this way. Make every effort to guard the unity of the spirit by throwing the whole person behind that effort. Throw the whole person. Get seriously involved with haste and passion to guard the unity of the spirit. That's how important it is. Now that naturally raises the question, where should all this effort go? If we have to make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit, what should we be putting the effort into? Well, what we often try to do is to do it through manuals and policies and procedures. They never keep anybody united. They create more problems. But Paul gives us the answer in verse 2. He says, be completely humble, <clears throat> meek or gentle, and patient. 
keep the unity of the spirit. In other words, the effort that is needed to go into guarding the unity that we already have is to go into the cultivation of three key character qualities that are humility, meekness, and patience. <clears throat> Let me unpack each one of those for you. And I want you to think about that particular group that you had in mind at the very beginning. Why is humility so essential for unity? Sometimes we can get a good answer to that by looking at the opposite and what it does. What is the opposite of humility? We all know the opposite of humility is pride. And pride is a very unique sin. The Desert Fathers labeled it the deadliest of the seven deadly sins, and they were right. Because there are two things about pride that makes it absolutely unique. The first thing about pride that makes it unique is that all of us have a problem with it. There are some sins that bother some of us that don't bother others. There are some sins that we can honestly say, hey, that's not a problem for me, that's not a temptation. But pride is a problem for every one of us. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, and uh, has a beautiful, simple illustration to this. He said, think of the last time you were in a group whose photograph was taken. When that photograph was given to you, who did you look at first? <laughs> right. And what usually determined whether the photograph was a good photograph or not? <laughs> exactly, right? So pride is ubiquitous. We all have the problem. The second thing, which is more germane to my issue this morning, is that pride is the one sin that always divides people. Other sins can unite people for a little while. A bunch of people planning to rob a bank are united for at least for a little while. But pride always divides. And the reason why pride always divides is pride is not happy with being rich. It has to be richer than. Pride is not happy with being clever. It has to be cleverer than. So here's the problem. You've got two people. They're both proud. That's why we said pride is ubiquitous. A wants to be more rich than B. B wants to be more rich than A. But sheer logic tells us that both can't be richer than the other. If A is richer than B, if A is cleverer than B, B is poorer than A. B is not as clever and yet wants to be. What do you think that does to the relationship? There's a wall that goes up right away because you try to pull the other person down somehow with negative comments. That's why pride always divides which is why humility, the opposite of pride, is irresistible by divine design. The humble person always unites. So it's very important for us to understand what humility really is then, because if it's so important to guarding unity, and the person that epitomizes it for us is humility, is Jesus. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, it talks about Jesus, who though he was equal with God, he did not consider that equality something to be grasped at. But he made himself humble as a human being. He humbled himself and eventually became obedient to death. Therefore, God exalted him. So the, the key mindset is a mindset that doesn't grasp. And that Greek word translated grasping was used in three different ways at that time. One way was to, it, it was to clutch onto something, hold onto something tightly. Jesus didn't. Jesus didn't hold on to his equality with God tightly, but he kept it loosely so that he could surrender it when called upon to come to save the world. The second meaning of the word grasping was not holding on to something tightly, but reaching for something that wasn't in your grasp. And Jesus didn't do that either. Well, what did he not reach for? What wasn't his? After all, he was Lord of the universe. Remember, until Jesus came on earth, for all the eons before that, that human beings lived, there was no song ever written with the name of Jesus. Nobody ever sang the glories of Christ. No, he was completely unknown. 
So all that time, the glory that belonged to Jesus, no one was singing those praises. But he didn't grasp for that. He waited until the right time came, in the fullness of time. And he humbled himself. Therefore, God exalted him and gave him a name that's above every other name so that today, two billion people are singing the praises of Jesus. He didn't clutch. He didn't grasp. And the third meaning was even more important. He didn't exploit. What do I mean by that? It was also used of a group of people where one person had an advantage and they would use that advantage to promote themselves as opposed to serving other people. Jesus didn't do any of those things. He set aside his divinity and he became a servant. So that is the essence of humility. It is to not clutch onto something that is yours, position, authority, whatever, but hold it loosely so that you can surrender it easily if you have to. Not grasp for something that is not yet yours, titles, positions, recognition, honor, vindication, but hold it and wait for God to give it to you. And thirdly, if you, if you are in a position of advantage, never use it to advance your own cause, but use it to serve other people. That's the essence of humility. Got a handle on that now? Here's my question. Go back to the group that I asked you to remember. Your family, your worship team, whatever team you're part of, that particular group I asked you to think about. What does it mean for you to take a step towards humility in that group? What do you need to hold loosely that you right now are clutching? What do you need to stop grasping for and let it wait until God comes to you? Where is it that you have an advantage that you are using to promote your own cause as opposed to serving others? Think with me for a minute, okay? Because you can't influence anybody else in that group. You're the only person who can influence yourself. And so think about that for a minute. What does it mean for me to guard that unity as a follower of Jesus in my Christian family, in my church, in my ministry group? Now, secondly, Paul also says, be completely humble, be meek. What is meekness? That's the second character quality that we have to develop if you're going to guard this unity of the spirit. <coughs> now, meekness is a translation of, a, of the Greek word praus, which is a very important term in Greek ethics. Aristotle used to define virtue as a balance between extremes, so that the virtue of courage was a balance between cowardice and recklessness. And meekness was a... Was the, was a character quality that had to do with anger. And it, it was the balance between uncontrolled anger on the one hand and the total inability to be angry at all on the other hand. And they went on to define meekness as the ability to be angry with the right person for the right reason for the right amount of time. Meekness is anger under control. It's the power to be angry with the right person for the right reason for the right amount of time. And as we continue to look at the scriptures, it's a whole sermon in itself, so I can only give you a few ideas. You will find that the things that ought to make us angry are the things that anger the heart of God. And the time to not be angry, but to surrender it, is when our own rights are violated. That's why Jesus in his opening statement said, blessed are the poor of spirit, which is humility. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And later on in that same sermon, he talks about what that means. He said, if someone slaps you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. That's the violation of your dignity rights. 
If someone forces you to walk one mile, which a Roman soldier could do to a Jew that day, he, uh, that in those days, he said, walk a second mile. That's a violation of your personal rights. Thirdly, he said, if someone sues you for your shirt, give them your cloak also. That's a violation of your legal rights. And fourthly, he says, if someone will borrow from you, don't turn away but give. That's a violation of your property rights. Pretty well includes every right we have, right? Dignity rights, personal rights, property rights, and legal rights. He says, hold them loosely. Don't be angry when they are violated. The meek will inherit the earth. But, when you, but be angry with the things that anger the heart of God. Again, Jesus is a beautiful example for us. You know, you know when he was angry. Remember when he cleansed the temple? He made a bunch of whips with, 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 uh, with cords, and he drove out the money changers. He overturned their tables. He was furious with them. He said, how dare you make my father's house a den of thieves? And the disciples looked at him and said, oh my goodness, zeal for God's house is consuming his mind. He was angry at the things that angered the heart of God. But a couple of days later, when they spat upon him, when they mocked him, when they slapped him, when they blindfolded him, when one single word from him to Pontius Pilate would have set him free, when his rights were violated left and right, talk about dignity rights being violated. Talk about personal rights being violated. Talk about legal rights being violated. Jesus kept quiet. Not only was the quintessentially humble, he was quintessentially meek as well. So I want you to go back to your group once again. And I want you to ask yourself the same question. What does it mean for me to take one step towards meekness? in that particular group of followers of Jesus that I'm a part of? Where have, where have I been angry at the things, not at the things that anger the heart of God, but because my rights have been violated? What violation of my personal rights do I need to hold more loosely and let God give it to me at the right time? Am I angry at the things that anger the heart of God? Am I angry with the right person for the right reason for the right amount of time? Ask those questions for yourself. Again, thinking about that particular group that you're a part of. And the third character quality is patience. Now, there are two different Greek words that are translated patience in our Bible, but the first one has to do with patience with circumstances, like and on the way back home, you suddenly get involved in a traffic accident. You're delayed. That's frustrating. That's irritating. Calls for patience. That's not the word that's used here. It's the second word for patience, which has to do with patience with people. Because that's what we're talking about, unity within the body of Christ. Now, why is patience important in this journey of becoming humble and meek people? Why is patience so important? Well, for two reasons. First of all, one of the problems about listening to a message like this is that some of you are probably thinking, I hope so-and-so is really listening carefully especially if you have a spouse sitting next to you. <laughs> or maybe you're thinking, I need to make sure to give this message to this person. Or, boy, when we get to that next board meeting, I sure hope so-and-so is. Uh, you know what? They're not going to be. For the simple reason, meekness and, pay, and humility are not learned overnight. They are learned at the feet of Jesus for a lifetime. That's why he who was humble and he who was meek teaches. That's why he says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Pride and, and anger, uncontrolled anger, are a huge burden in life. 
And Jesus has come to me. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Why? Because I am humble and I am meek, and you will find rest for your souls. So we learn it from it. So it takes a long time. So we need patience. We need to give ourselves time and we need to give people around us time. But even more important to the point, I think here, the word patience also means long-suffering. Why, why is long-suffering involved in the journey of pursuing humility and meekness? For the simple reason that if you decide, because the Holy Spirit is prompting you today and you're learning something that you didn't know about, if you decide as a result of that, yes, I am going to start taking steps towards being a humble and a meek person in my group, guess what? There is no guarantee that anybody else is going to follow you. You know what will happen then? If you're the only person in a group that is working towards humility and meekness and nobody else is, they're going to take advantage of you. And then you're going to hurt. That's when suffering is going to start. That's when the temptation will be, ah, forget it, who needs this? I'm just going to go back to my old ways. That's when a long-suffering person says, doesn't matter. Remember that old song we sing, though none go with me, still I will follow. I have decided to follow Jesus. That's the mindset that you need for this. Though none in my group, in my family, in my church, in my worship team, in my ministry team, though none of them want to go on this journey of humility and meekness, I will not quit. And I will accept the challenges that will come with that. That's why humility, meekness, and patience are three critical character qualities to preserve the unity of the Spirit. So Paul continues after that. He says in verses 7 to 11, but, but, so he's moving into a different subject, but to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned us. That is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. See, unity does not mean identity. Unity does not mean that we're all clones. That's the hallmark of the cults. No, God makes unity out of diversity. We're, we're all unique, uniquely made. And in this particular context, he's talking about the unique gifts that God has given to us. We don't all have the same gifts. We're different. And therefore, we will have different opinions, different ideas. We come at issues from different directions. And so there's a second principle. The first principle is keep the unity of the Spirit. The second principle is recognize the diversity of the giftedness in the body of Christ. And the implications for this are simple. You see, left to ourselves in our natural state, we like people who are like us and we dislike people who are different than us. Well, anybody can live like that. Most of the world lives like that. But as Christians, we know that's wrong. So we might make it to the next step. We like people who are like us, and we tolerate people who are different than us. But that's hardly any improvement. And we know if we're serious at all with Jesus, that's not good enough. So most of us make it to the next stage, which is we like people who are like us, and we like people who are different than us in spite of their differences. Paul says you've got one more step to go. Learn to love people and like people who are different than you because they are different than you. You know why? Because it is only those people, in the body of Christ we're talking about, it is only those people who are most different than you that will cause you to grow, from whom you can learn. Any one of us who's married immediately knows the truth of this statement. I mean, my wife and I have been married for almost 47 years. We are at opposite ends of the spectrum. In the Myers-Briggs spectrum, I am an introverted, structured thinker. She's an extroverted, flexible feeler. I'm a detailed person. She's intuitive. When it comes to spiritual gifts, my gifts are in teaching, knowledge, and leadership. Hers are hospitality and wisdom. So you couldn't imagine two people further apart on the spectrum. 
But both of us would say that the areas in which we have changed and grown the most as a result of our marriage is the areas in which we're different from each other. She's taught me to be more sensitive, more loving, more kind, more focused on people. I'll never be as good as her, but I'm a lot better than I was. And she will tell you that she's learned things that are my strengths. And that's true in the whole body of Christ. It's most obvious in marriage. So we need to appreciate one another for our differences. And by the way, both humility and meekness are needed if you're going to do this well. Because you see, uh, I'm not going to learn from my wife unless I'm humble enough to say, honey, you're a lot better than I am in this. So I'm going to listen to what you have to say. And vice versa. So without humility, we won't even be willing to learn from one another. We'll try to prove our own superiority. We'll argue with them. Pride will kick in. And then we don't grow. Then we don't learn. We don't appreciate for the difference. Ah, oh, why can't you be like me? No, when we are supposed to say, ah, okay, I'm glad you're not like me. Because in this area, you're helping. It was said of President Dwight Eisenhower that we would never, never implement a strategy for governing or warfare in particular. Because he was, he was the president at the time of the Second World War. Unless he found at least one advisor who would disagree with him. Because then he said, I know that my blind spots are covered. Because only the people who disagreed with him would point out the potential weaknesses of his plan. And he was a good enough military strategist to know that he wanted to go in with his eyes wide open. That's a beautiful example of humility. <clears throat> By the way, meekness is also needed because if the person that's different than you are the ones that can point out your weakness, shortcomings. Say, you know what? You didn't do that really well. Sometimes on my sermon, my wife is my greatest fan and my harshest critic. So she'll say, hey, you know, you shouldn't have said what you said that way. Oh, really? Why not? I mean, if I was humble enough, I'd ask why not. Otherwise, I'd argue. And rather than get angry, it's to say, mm, okay, you're right. I need to change that. So you need meekness as well. Humility and meekness are both needed to appreciate people who are different than us. So, I want you to go back and think about your group again. Who in that group that you were thinking of, could be your family, could be your, whatever group you think of, who in that group is most different than you? <coughs> think, if, you're a, if you're in a committee or a board meeting, think of... <coughs> The last time you thought to yourself, oh my goodness, I hope so-and-so doesn't come to the meeting. Because when they come, the meetings are always an hour longer. <laughs> Instead, what you need to say is, oh my goodness, the issue we're dealing with is so important. I hope so-and-so comes. Because we need somebody who thinks very differently outside the box to help us make a wise decision. Excuse me. <coughs> So think about your group. <coughs> Who is most different than you in that group that you need to start appreciating because they are different than you? Maybe you need to let them know that. Who in that group do you resist most input from? <coughs> Maybe you need to change that attitude. Think about that for a minute.
Then finally, Paul continues with the, with the third and final principle, governing principle of church life. Some <clears throat> verses uh, 12 to 13. After the, who are the gifts given for? Verse 12 to 16. To prepare God's people for works of service so the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So unity and diversity properly practiced will lead to maturity. So we keep the unity, we recognize the diversity, and we grow in maturity. Now, what does maturity look like? I have discovered that as a Christian, after being a Christian for over 55 years, that one of the key marks of, unit, of, of maturity is to find a balance between extremes. Because we naturally tend to be people of extremes. And so he goes on, he says, Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. See, it was C.S. Lewis who said that the devil always sends errors into this world in pairs so that in reacting against the one, we fall headlong into the other. Let me say that again. The devil always sends errors into this world in pairs so that in reacting against one, we fall headlong into the other. The quintessence of maturity is to tread that fine line, that balance. And Paul talks about a couple of balances here. First of all, he talks about uh, doctrinal stability. It's a balance between gullibility and rigidity. Some people are rigid. I know what I believe and you can't change my mind. They don't say those words, but they act like that. On the other hand, are people that I would say are gullible, they just go with the flow. The latest book, the latest message, the latest sermon, the latest pop psychology, and they're off running on that direction. They become champions of the latest. That's gullibility. The other end is rigidity. Paul says neither one is maturity. The mature individual is a stable individual who might say something like this. I know what I believe. I have good reasons to believe what I do, but I also know that I don't know everything. I have a lot to learn, so if you have something to teach me, I am willing to listen, I'm willing to learn, and I'm willing to change my mind if I need to. That's maturity. And then the second balance, of course, he says speaking the truth in love. Some of us are very good at speaking the truth, but we do it in such a way to destroy people. Others of us in the name of love will completely avoid confronting people speaking the truth at all and then do an end run. This is why, by the way, so many issues of conflicts in the church never get addressed by leadership. <clears throat> so what is, one end is destructive truth-telling, the other end is indulgent love. The balance, which is probably the very difficult balance, is speaking the truth in love. That's real maturity. And boy, it does take maturity to speak the truth in love. Because you know something? I can, if probably yours is true, I can take any criticism from someone if I know they love me. But if I know they, they don't know that, then it's harder for me. I mean, I still need to take it, learn to take it as a meek person, but it's a lot easier if I know they love me. There was a, there was a young fellow in our church who I had the privilege to mentor. He, he's somewhere else now. But there was probably nobody in that church that was more loyal to me as a leader. But one of the unique gifts that God has given to him was of tremendous courage he had the ability to come alongside Christian leaders and speak truth into their lives. And there was one occasion where he thought that what I said from the pulpit didn't match what I really believed. And he said, Sundar, I was up, I was awake for three nights coming to terms with that. And finally he spoke to me about it. That's, now that kind of person I can take anything from because I know they love. Speaking the truth in love is not easy. 
So by the way, the next time you're going to have to speak truth, what do you have to do first? <laughs> Let them know that you love them by the way you treat them. So I want you to go back to your groups once again for the last time. We've thought through what, what humility, meekness, and patience might look like for you in that group. We've talked a little bit about appreciating others in that group for their diversity and receiving input in humility and meekness. Now I want you to go back one more time to that group and say, is there anyone in whom I need to speak the truth in love? Or is there anything that I've refused to learn from others because my mind has been made up? Or do I need to be much more teachable? Stop for a minute there and then we'll pray together. You see in chapter 5, that, and the epistle has no chapter divisions, Paul talking about all of this moves on and later on he says, keep on being filled with the Spirit of God, speaking and singing and thanking and submitting to one another. And then he says, do everything out of reverence for Jesus. The power is the Holy Spirit, the motive is the glory of Jesus. And we have already sung about the glory of Jesus in some beautiful songs. And the worship team is going to come and lead us now in another song that magnifies Jesus. That's the motive. It's his body. He's the head. If he's worth every song we sing, if he's worth every breath that we breathe, he is certainly worth us pursuing maturity. Wouldn't you agree? Father, thank you for the glory of Jesus. Forgive us that we do not see. Forgive us that we sing more easily than we feel it. So please, by the Spirit of God, touch our hearts. Give us glimpses of the glory of Jesus and say, because he is worth it, I will, by the power of the Spirit, walk in humility, walk in meekness, walk in patience, be a teachable person, speak the truth in love, and thus bless the body of Christ and bring glory to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.